from deep inside your radio. From Leicester Square in London, England, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. Very special edition of the show. I know, they all are, but but really. First of all, what the frack? You know that the uh, fluids used in uh, fracking of wells have been, well, the companies involved have been a little secretive about them. Trade secrets, they say, because they're good for you, right? According to the Environmental Working Group, dozens of chemicals, the, the fluids used in California fracking, California fracking, uh, contain dozens of chemicals that are hazardous to human health. They didn't want you to know that, including substances linked to cancer, reproductive harm, and hormone disruption. Under a law requiring disclosure of all chemicals used to frack in California, or Califrac, drilling companies reported using 197 unique chemicals in 691 oil wells from December 13 through February 15. The fracking fluids typically contain two dozen or more different chemicals. Fifteen are listed under California's Prop 65 as known causes of cancer or reproductive harm. Twenty-five are likely to contain impurities of Proposition 65 listed chemicals. Five, that the European Union is associated with an increased risk of cancer. Six, associated with reproductive harm. Three, linked to clear evidence of hormone disruption. Twelve, listed under the Federal Clean Air Act as hazardous air pollutants known to cause cancer or other harm. And 93, associated with harm to aquatic life. So, Ladies and gentlemen, if you have a choice, don't be aquatic life near a fracking well. California's fracking disclosure law is the most comprehensive in the nation. The data provide the most detailed accounting available of the chemical makeup of fracking fluids, at least for one state. Nationwide, the EPA found nearly 700 fracking chemicals in use, but EPA was relying on data from that voluntary database that allows companies to withhold information they consider trade secrets. Comparing the state and EPA data show that, show that some of the most hazardous chemicals are used less often in California than nationwide, but the typical California job uses about twice as many chemicals as the national average. Fracking California tends to use less water than in other states, for obvious reasons, so the concentrations of chemicals in fracking fluids are sometimes higher. What the frack? And now, news of the warm, won't you? One of the newest and seemingly most Viable forms of clean energy could be poised to outperform all of the existing options, including solar, algae biofuel. Algae are found throughout the Earth's oceans where they employ photosynthetic processes to create energy using sunlight. Some types of algae produce oils they can use to store energy, which means that those certain algae can be grown and then harvested to produce biofuel, a net carbon neutral process. Corn and soybeans have been used to produce biofuel, but they, algae offer several advantages over them. The yields are between 10 and 100 times as high as those of traditional biofuels, and algae can grow in marginal agricultural areas, meaning that production doesn't compete for land with food crops. Many believe the size of the market could almost double within the next few years to $200 billion for biofuels. It would take a land area three times the size of the United States to replace all the fuel used in transportation in the U.S. with corn-derived biofuel. By contrast, it would only take an area the size of Maryland to do so using algae. Imagine Maryland full of algae. Well, we can dream, can't we? Or we can be Martin O'Malley. He could do it. 
the Department of Energy is pouring money into efforts to promote the viability and efficiency of using algae as a fuel. Researchers in the Netherlands are experimenting with growing multiple species of algae together to achieve synergies that aren't possible with monocultures. Algae has been used successfully in a number of commercial areas. In 2011, United Airlines ran the first passenger flight powered solely by algae products. Also, its customer service personnel now are algae exclusively. What's holding algae back from wider mainstream use is price. It's about $7.50 a gallon. Experts believe algae fuels must reach around $3 a gallon to be able to successfully compete with oil-based products. So algae, don't unionize. Just a word word of the wise. Now, ladies and gentlemen, some news about secrets. The Supreme Court was asked in a petition this month to force the U.S. government to disclose its clandestine plan to disable cell phone service during emergencies. Ladies and gentlemen, just another reason not to disconnect your landline. This is Standard Operating Procedure 303. This is from Ars Technica, not some weirdo website. A federal appeals court in May said the government didn't have to release full contents of SOP 303 because the Freedom of Information Act allows the authorities to withhold records if they would endanger public safety for your own good. But the uh, Court of Appeals, sorry, uh, decision, according to the Electronic Privacy Information Center, creates a new catch-all provision that can be used in any case involving records related to domestic and national security programs. Under the direction of the National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee, SOP 303 allows for the shuttering of wireless networks within a localized area, such as a tunnel or bridge, and within an entire metropolitan area. The telecom companies have agreed to shutter service when SOP 303 is invoked. There are no publicly disclosed instances of the measure actually ever being invoked. So how would we know? Keep your landline. And, speaking of which, the National Security Agency's ability to spy on vast quantities of Internet traffic passing through the United States has relied on the its extraordinary decades-long partnership with a single company, AT&T. It's been long, this is the New York Times reporting, it's been long known that American telecommunications companies work closely with the NSA. Newly disclosed documents show the relationship with AT&T has been considered unique and especially productive. So don't keep your landline. No, this is the cell service of AT&T. One document described it as a highly collaborative Relationship and other lauded the company's, quote, extreme willingness to help. AT&T, your extreme willingness to help, as long as they're not helping you. AT&T's cooperation has involved a broad range of classified activities, according to the documents. It's given the NSA access through several methods covered under different legal rules to billions of emails as they flowed across its domestic networks. It provided technical assistance in carrying out a secret court order permitting the wiretapping of all Internet communications at the U.N., The agency's partnership has enabled the NSA to conduct surveillance under several different legal rules of international and foreign-to-foreign Internet communications that pass through network hubs on American soil. The top-secret budget in 2013 for the AT&T partnership with the NSA was more than twice that of the next largest such program, according to the documents. One document reminds NSA officials to be polite when visiting AT&T facilities, noting, quote, this is a partnership. Not a contractual arrangement. The use of secrets, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature 
of this broadcast. And now from London to Los Angeles. Every once in a while on this broadcast, uh, I've had uh, guests who uh, happen to be uh, gifted and autistic at the the playing of the 88s, mainly in New Orleans, because that's where a lot of them gather. But uh, it occurred to me a couple years ago, I shared a stage with uh, this gentleman. We were both uh, appearing at Dan Hicks' 70th birthday party in unaccompanied by his usual flotilla of strings and play some uh, some of his compositions on solo piano and I thought I got to get some of that uh here on the program and finally after some pulling and tugging some uh, some gears have been uh, lubricated in the studio today is Mr. Van Dyke Parks one of the uh, true Los Angeles musical legends and uh, being accompanied by another legend uh in his own mind Leland Sklar on bass uh, but Van Dyke what a pleasure to have you here. So great, uh, Harry. Uh, we we're pulling together. I'm I'm in total agreement with you. You've got my proxy. That's why I'm here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, let's let's start first of all. Just a brief summary of all the people uh, you've worked with through the years in this city, starting with uh, Brian Wilson, Lowell George, uh, Randy Newman, Ry Cooter. Right. Everly Brothers. Everly Brothers. Wow. Bon, Bonnie Ray. Wow, yeah. So you've you've known some folks and, and been involved in some stuff. How'd you come to be in Los Angeles? You weren't born here, right? No, I came out uh, for a short stint. To pay. I was going to a boarding school. I came out in 1955 to be. Uh, I was on a poster, a movie poster. It was called The Swan. Uh, I've always remembered that I was in a movie with Grace Kelly. At a cocktail party, I guess recently, that in the last ten or twenty years, somebody said yes, and I noticed that you didn't get a close-up. <laughs> but in, you were in you were in the movie. I was, yeah. It was had Van Dyke Parks there with uh, Grace Kelly, Alec Guinness, Louis Jordan, Agnes Moorhead, Jesse Royce Landis, Brian Ahern, Leo G. Carroll. What a cast! What, what How a, old were you? And I was. Uh, listen, I came out here in 1950, uh, 1953. Got off at Pasadena, took the limo with Limey was his name, the driver. <laughs> Lime, the best best driver at most interesting, voluble driver mm-hmm. at MGM Studios, and they and he drove us, me and my mother, to the Chateau Marmont, and we stayed in 3D, which was right across the hall from Eartha Kitt. Wow! And that was uh, my. And when I that saw that was a House of Wax room, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, <laughs> wait, wait, just a second. No, wait, just a second. I took, I took Eartha. Uh, that was the year that Swanson came out with Frozen Dinners, a beef pot pie. That <laughs> very much impressed her. Uh, I, I, I had a lot of those pies in my youth. Um, yeah. So you. What? Where did you come from to come so, be in a movie? Well, a school in Princeton, New Jersey, ah. a boy choir school, a boarding school. You know, on the the uh, uh, epitome. If if you saw that picture, yeah, sure, Lindsay Anderson's yeah. fine picture. You saw the the chaos of social revelation of being in an immersion of music, dead white guy music, uh-huh. madrigals and motets and. Everything was everything was legit. When I go home, uh, my three elder brothers 
would bring in Elvis Presley, Bill Haley, Les Paul. You know, I got exposed. Mm. My parents had loved uh, Fats Waller. They picked their right, the right Fats there <laughs> to me. He was really something. Home was where? Well, it started out in, in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Uh-huh. And then, uh, but I wouldn't remember much about it. Uh, I remember my mother was cautioned not to have a red light on the porch. She said, Please, Mary Joy, would you remove the... L-? I remember that. I remember how to take a tick out without losing the head. Mm. So, I mean, I learned things in the South that were pretty rudimentary. It wasn't as if I knew about the blues or anything. I didn't have the blues. I've been happy all the time since. Went to Lake Charles, uh, Louisiana. Uh-huh. Lived there a couple years. My father was a peripatetic doctor. Matter of fact, integrated the first Southern hospital voluntarily without incident. Mm. They found some tongue depressors in some razor uh, uh, razor blades were put in them, but they caught them in time. So wow. the South has always been a peaceful, uh, beautiful idol but it, the south i knew was uh unair conditioned mm. recently my wife and i went down to hattiesburg to hometown boy makes good come and be a a, a member of the mississippi musicians hall of fame so i went down with sally we went down there and we realized as we in our motel room as we were together she's from memphis we started recollecting our 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 youth and that we did not have a house we could go into. Everyone was dead or gone. Mm. The town was imploded. A Walmart had sucked the life out of Hattiesburg. And we went to connect with the people at the, at the, who are offering me the award, being a famous musician in, in Mississippi, and um, followed on a stage in that auditorium. We followed this soigné, this elegant, tall, goddess an olympian goddess and she was the daughter of howlin wolf and was accepting an award for howlin wolf and she got up there and she said thank you know she started okay but she started to tremble and she said and my daddy would walk a mile down a track in the heat for just a spoonful of something to eat and Mm. she started to sob and the house completely was uh deflated and somehow or another, she was scor- escorted off the stage. She was embarrassed. And uh, then it was time for Van Dyke Park. <laughs> you had to follow that. <laughs> and, and I got up as I was getting up from my seat. My <laughs> wife tugged at me, and she said, keep it light. <laughs> <laughs> so what got you from uh, MGM movies into music? Well, you know, I just got the money. I got the money. I think I got $1,500 a week or something like that. It's a lot of money in those days. And uh, that paid for my tuition. And my father's just a doctor. You know, most of his work was pro bono and stuff like that. He was just a doctor. Mm. And um, so we didn't, weren't rich. And But uh, my brothers were all away at school, and there was death in the immediate family. So I was just plunged into a school, a beautiful school, never forget it. And that made it apparent to me that music should be the calling, you know, that, that I didn't know how I would do that. I thought I really wanted to be a clarinetist. I, I have a picture of myself on a, a clarinet at the first chair. My feet didn't hit the ground <laughs> because I was sh- shorter than the other guys. But I've always had some connection to music. And I, when I came out here in 63 
having gone through two and a half years of Carnegie Tech, looking at stark music without any physicality or melody, nothing you could take after you'd listen to the, these uh, incredible serial com- uh, killer uh, composers. <laughs> serial killer, I mean, and you come out of there and you say, well, what did I get from this? I don't have anything, nothing has been transported. And so I came out here to see my brother who was in a coffee house. He played the first Ice House out in Pasadena, mm-hmm. if anybody knows. He played there for him and his partner. They were the act for a year, solid. They were it. And um, so his partner went to Hawaii, so I came in to step in and do this little uh, beatnik death knell <laughs> era, right? You go someplace, a man would type out on a Smith Corona, would type out your personality traits for a buck you keep a poet alive they had those walter keen pictures of the doe-eyed kids uh for sale um it was big you know hermosa beach i remember they made something like 150,000 bucks one year bob Hare was his name that was at the insomniac right across the street was uh uh, Howard's uh, uh, Lighthouse, the jazz. Howard Rumsey's r- Lighthouse. Yeah, yeah. Rumsey's, and that run the first night that we, and my brother and I were playing. We had to we had to follow. My brother and I had to follow Willie Chambers on guitar, l- Long Gone Miles vocal. We had to and, and or Bessie Bessie Griffin and the Gospel Pearls. Oh my God! Or. Andrew de la Bastide's uh, steel band, huh. Trinidad. So it was like, you know, really an eclectic experience. I mean, to me, a wonderful, well-balanced menu. And right across the street, now I was, man, I was, in 1963, the summer of love, I was 20. I wasn't supposed to be in a bar. I looked 16. I walked over there. I saw Astrid Gilberto the first night. She did that samba. mm I that's or Bossa Nova, yeah. pardon me, Bossa Nova. Yeah. I, that, I saw her. The, I went back to the kitchen to pursue her. She was older woman, maybe three years older than I, and um, I wanted so much to meet her and be horizontal. <laughs> and and uh, with her, yeah, with her, <laughs> not by yourself. I, I went into the kitchen. This is what are you doing here, kid? You know, like that. And she's behind a curtain, which was the dressing room. <laughs> And she was crying. And I just, at that moment, I realized, this is a very mature woman. She's got a problem. <laughs> I don't speak her language. But I've come close. I've met, in all this time, that's, uh, you know, that has, I decided to stay, as you can tell. And uh, in all this time, I never had a plan, but just met people like Lee Sklar, who give me buoyancy and uh, a chance well, any 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 time hot air is blown into you, you get more buoyant. Um, <laughs> can we hear, skipping way ahead to a, a, a time when you wrote an original musical, and uh, one of the songs in it has always been one of my favorite things you've ever done. Uh, Hominy Grove. You're gonna do this to me. I know. <laughs> the fingers never leave the hands. <laughs> Yeah, so I look at this stuff. It's like, and I and I can only say, whatever was I thinking? <laughs> That's what my my wife told me uh, that a gentleman should know how to say that. <laughs> yes, ma'am. And whatever was I thinking? <laughs> I was thinking about a Brer Rabbit. It's a morality tale, but I wanted to give him a sense of place, and I called it Hominy Grove. 
It's, you know, they use that word in the Library of Congress where they keep this literature that they haven't yet burned. So this is about Br'er Rabbit. Off the wall, wallflower, now the dance has begun. It's our shining hour till all our dancing is done. Mammy, whammy, jammy, cooking up on a stove. Me and my buttercup, things have been looking up in Harmony Grove. Sweet Harmony. together like birds of a feather down in harmony grow sweet harmony Whatever were you thinking? <laughs> I was thinking that uh, I read in this literature, which is, as, as I say, hasn't been burned yet, that Br'er Rabbit was a mighty man on a fiddle. Mm. And that's why I uh, cited uh, a Hungarian rhapsody for the violin solo. <laughs> so when I first became uh, aware of you, I'd been invited to... Uh, Sunset Sound in Hollywood to hear uh, bef- right before it was released the first Rikuda record with it was a listening party, and uh, who arranged this? What what is what happened here? And uh, your name was mentioned, and then very shortly afterwards, I think your first solo record came out on Warner's, and I became aware that well, you, you'll change, you'll fix the. No, that that's chronology. true. I had recorded my first album though. Ah. But they held on to it for a year so they could write it off <laughs> and still profit from it. It's called <laughs> Cooking Books. Mm. Yeah. Now, 
as I became aware of this scene, you, you're there. Randy Newman is there. Ry That's Cooter right. is there. Lowell George is there. This is this really remarkable bunch of people gathered in this little studio in North Hollywood making music. It's sort of the remnant of the record company Frank Sinatra started, right? Exactly. They were, uh, we were all laundering that Vegas money. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> No, 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 just a second. I don't think that it is wrong for us to, you know, get a little Runyon-esque here. There is, there is a rough and ready, um, well, I don't want to use the word criminal, but, uh, but a, a, a street uh, survival uh, kind of corruptibility about the record business that we in the 60s inherited. Mm-hmm. The people were still uh, promoting product with $20 bills and brown paper bags. So along came this talent pool. I thought it was a talent pool. I was amazed by Ry Cooter and all of those. Randy Newman, I just can't t- tell you how much I love his innate ability and, uh, and uh, memory. So uh, all, all of them, and then that Lowell George having two bottleneck players, not one telling you all about the Delta, the place that I came from. Now they're telling me. Mm. So I was just amazed by, uh, and what brought me to very much to my knees with Lowell George was that he, he idolized Howlin' Wolf. Mm. And yet he knew, uh, uh, lest I appear au fait. You know, I had listened to this music, but I never adopted the blues mm-hmm. because I just didn't feel that was in my power. And uh, so I didn't do it. How, who who assembled you all in the spot? Well, How met, did you come to be there? I met, uh, this is very interesting, on Antiques Roadshow, ever they talk about objects, but people, socially, people have very poor memories about who met who, how, mm-hmm. when. And I think the social provenance is absolutely one of the most beautiful chapters of an, of a, of a, of an advised, of a, a, a person who's aware. With age, you or being seasoned, you must look back and try to study that provenance. So very interesting. I met Ry Cooter at a, on the Ash at the Ashgrove in passing. I realized that he was a habitué there. It's a legendary folk club in Los Angeles. That was a, a the, the 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 yeah the folk nicks hung out there. Scene of a lot of uh, strange fires too. This is amazing how that stuff can just go up on you. It's yeah. like kind of kind of like Onassis did with ships. You know, he he would put pump, punch a hole in them and filled with grain, they'd explode. Wow! You know, he got who a, knew? <laughs> who knew that if Jackie had known that she wouldn't have she wouldn't have made the move, but. Rye came to me though in in on the job, on uh, at Columbia Studios with with uh, Terry Melcher. Terry Melcher was the introducer. Mm. Terry was Doris Day's son, as you know, and and had came was born with a silver, you know, syndicated spoon in his mouth. The guy was amazingly uh, Beverly Hills. I mean, per, a legacy baby of show business. He could have just kicked back and done nothing, but what he did was introduce people. He was became part of the mechanism, of social mechanism. He kept musicians fed. Mm. Uh, you know, he was compassionate and wise. And, and uh, Terry Melcher was so much more than Charles Manson would suggest. And yet he lived that life in infamy for what that evil man had done. 
but just uh, but but Terry was introduced me. so Rye and I became Paul Revere and the Raiders I can't believe it what are we doing here <laughs> that uh, the group this mock-up group was supposed to be America's answer to the Beatles uh-huh. so they needed some music they didn't really want to play or something I don't know <laughs> they didn't come to the dates <laughs> So we played, so I met, had a great association with Rye and used that friendship. I mean, that we were together. My my house was a watering hole for him. I believe he was a sober man mm. always, but uh, he visited when I lived in Laurel Canyon. So big friendship with, with uh, Rye. First album of his I played on, on and it was called uh, A Producer. Well, there once was a time when By the time your record came out, it, it I, I always felt like I was on the on the edge of L.A. In, in more ways than geographically, and it seemed to me like you had become a, a, almost adopted by young Hollywood. Is that is that a misapprehension on my part? Well, I don't think, and I don't remember any uh, direct bank wire transfers. <laughs> Not that, darling, I guess, uh. but but. Uh, but I was very useful because I didn't show any alpha uh, uh, problems. Uh, I could be I could be very happy doing something beta. So everybody wanted to sound like Bob Dylan, and they had all were insisting on playing steel string guitars. Uh, I decided to help play the piano. Maybe they need a pianist. Ride didn't need anything really. Maybe maybe use some ropes so I could have a job. So we got the strings arranged for Rye Cooterson, but also got to play. Piano with his minimalistic kind of, you see, the power to use the, these economical harmonic uh, structures is what uh, which does what uh, Rye does. Mm. It's very interesting, and try not to sound pentatonic. Chinese music. Yeah, and uh, but uh, so but Rye is very uh, very wary of that fourth chord. Mm. So basically, isn't that something? Wow. So this is I. So I learned every experience with somebody else. To tell you the truth, I've been eclipsed by so many people and enjoy it. I'm very invigorated by it. Well, you had this amazing collaboration with Brian Wilson. Tell me how that came about. Well, once again, Terry Melcher. Really? Yeah, Terry Melcher. Uh, you know, uh, up on his the lawn on his house in Cielo Drive, where I were looking. You know, the the white picket fence, the the, the emerald lawn, the the white fence, the diamonds laid out there, mm. L.A. beyond. And, and uh nice uh, uh soiree 
you know, very civilized, probably some good finger food and stuff. And um, those met, fingers are delicious. And I met Brian Wilson there. Yeah. Well, there's, and Terry said to him, "Then you can, might you want to use Van Dyke as the lyricist, because I had written my first song. See, which was well, the song was called High Coin. Hmm. And uh, when times and places effervesce in words of wonder, down uh, from down under, I'm no less. I'm fine. It's my time." But it, the the way I, I that I got a rep, okay, mm-hmm. that's what they call cred. Uh-huh. But it, it's not. That's it, a thin line to crud, <laughs> and uh, but just a typo away. <laughs> and, but but as I did, the motto being the older I get, the better I was. <laughs> uh, that the I went from Harold's Club where I was playing guitar for the Brandywine Singers, Folkies. Mm-hmm. I was making, I think, 3500 bucks a week. It was a fortune. Wow. I was just 21. Okay, that was 1964. I wrote a song called High Coin. After the date, I went from, from Harold's Club. I went with this tall bass player. He, was, uh, he ended up to be the state attorney general of Alaska. He gave up show business right after Reno. But I said, hey, let's get in the car. Let's go down and see this ghost town. So he took his upright bass, I took my Mattingly guitar, uh, nylon string, and in the trunk, and we went down to a place called Virginia City, which has just been barely alive for 150 years. Mark Twain had sp- spoken there, all kinds of John, Diamond Jim, I mean, incredible wealth that, that's an eruption of, of silver extract. And so we went down there to the ghost town with the convertible. Parked the car on, you know, whatever, the only street in town. <laughs> and uh, I swung open the, the saloon doors. I had my guitar. It probably looked maybe 18. There was a group of four men in a purple cloud at the side of the room, just in the room, obviously of musicians on a break. They had Edwardian clothes, Victoriana, you know, long hair, beautiful men. Great mustaches, mm-hmm. real good hair, hair stuff. The hair was good. And I walked in, and they looked at me, and I could feel them uh, uh, shudder. New York City, you know. <laughs> <laughs> There's this kid. And I said, may I please play one of my songs? Nobody's in the place, just them. And I played this song because they saw the bass player. It's like six feet four. Yeah, your protection. Yeah, the guy wanted to play bass, too. <laughs> So we played that song, and they said, hey, that's great. Can we do it? And they recorded it, and it became a San Francisco turntable hit and got me through, got me some cra- uh, cachet uh-huh. in the counterculture. Who was the band? They were called the Charlatans. Charlatans. Oh, so that's, I, yes. that's where you knew Dan Hicks from. So that's what started me off, and that song, and uh, then, uh, so I was known as a lyric, that's, that song is what Terry was thinking about, he said, Van Dyke's trying lyrics, why don't you use him on some lyrics? That's how Brian first considered doing it, and then later on, uh, David Crosby took me up there, he said, let's go see Brian, we were at the, the tr- Troubadour, and then David said, let's go see Brian, and we went up, and Brian had... I think two eight-track machines, mm. uh, and was playing the uh, with different mixes the components of um, Sloop John B. Sloop John B. How about them apples? Wow. So that's 
And then that seemed to have done it. I don't remember what happened. But one time I was riding a motorcycle up there at night, you know, and come up here, you know, 9 o'clock. I, I was vaulting pay toilets. I had no money. I was living in a real garage apartment. And, I mean garage. <laughs> and uh, behind Norm's Hardware on Melrose, 72, 22 and a half. <laughs> and uh, we went, I went up there on that, uh, on that uh, little... Um, uh, Yamaha 80cc <laughs> motorcycle, ran out of gas, stopped. The, the cop says, what are you doing here? That light in the, in the mm -hmm. said, well, I'm going to work for Brian Wilson. I'm on a motorcycle in Beverly Hills late at night. It took me over to the house, and I went, to, and Brian opened the door. Mm. And the cop said, I just want to make sure everything's okay, Mr. Wilson. And, and he said, oh, yeah, come on in. And he said, I think he invited him in. And he said, you know, he said, my sister used to date your brother. The cop says to Brian Wilson, my sister used to date your brother. I was in the gate. <laughs> That's it. The diamond necklace played the pawn And a handsome drum to love To a handsome man at baton Back through the opera glass You see the pit and the pendulum Amazing. That's the story. Um, Orange Crate Art was with him much later? Yes. Well, yeah. So later, you know, then, then with the psychodrama, some p people call it the backstory. I think that that's the wrong term. I think it's the headline. Uh, but uh, the, the personal uh, misadventures, psychological adventures, uh, you know, lithium-related medicaments and the contraindications of taking such drugs for so long, it had its effect. And so I went, but I saw that when I thought up this, I always obsessed with orange crate art. I love propaganda art of any sort. I love propaganda art. Um, it's got some power. Everything is so great. I love hyperbole. <laughs> so anyway, there it was. So I thought of orange crate art, and I did that little exercise that I learned. Can I play it for you? Please. It says, uh, that, uh, that I learned, and you know, I've heard the expression pianistic composers there are some you know schumann schubert there are these guys who uh who kind of you can feel that they thought up their um their music at a piano and this is just kind of like what that was like this was this was a um this was an exercise to me the piano is is a uh, a very difficult instrument and uh every note matters to me well, you wouldn't know that from what you hear but it's true <laughs> so i started at an e flat and for that reason i'm going to play it just as it occurred i held on to this little piano exercise for probably a couple of years and then i decided to do something about it and brian was the guy that should sing the word orange <laughs>
orange crate art was a place to start orange crate art was a world apart home for two in view of sonoma where there's a roma and a heart memories of her orange crate art orange crate table and a rocking chair barnyard gate waiting some repair trust in fate and sweet inspiration you could go bust to replace just what is here by the case hear the lonesome low commotion roar hobo hop on if you dare and it rolls where grapes of wrath are stored stops on a bracero's prayer From the vine of a vintage groove Comes the wine of this rendezvous Room for two in view of Sonoma Where there's aroma and heart Memories of her orange crater Van Dyke Parks with Lee Sklar on bass, uh, Orange Crate Art. Uh, you co-wrote Heroes and Villains, Surf's Up. Were you around when the members of the Beach Boys uh, were in the studio and Brian would come in and say, this is what we're going to do next, and they heard this this kind of lyricism? Uh, I, I was only with the, with the guys in the studio um, uh, on, the, on the smile thing for that uh, infamous, uh, you know, defend the lyrics thing, you know, that one scene where I met uh, with Mike Love, who didn't want... I think he represented um, a very sensible 
majority opinion that the lyrics were no good. <laughs> so it made sense. Um, but uh, so I don't think that there, as anybody should be uh, um, uh, derided for such a strategic uh, reaction. But, you know, it was like what it was interesting to me that it didn't uh, appear in this um, movie of late called Love and Merch. Um, that, um, oh, I'm sorry, Love and Mercy. Why did I Oh, man, I, I'm sorry. It's like mistaking creditors for predators. <laughs> but uh, that it wasn't uh, noted there, you know, that uh, when uh, it came time for Jesse Ehrlich, who was facing an empty music stand, he's sitting there with a cello, which I'd suggested he come to the date, and uh, Jesse had no music, and Brian said, on the talk back, you see, it's 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 it. it there's evidentiary material. Mm -hmm. The talk back says Jesse Van Dyke says Barco. I said no, no Brian, not Barco. Arco with the bow, <laughs> eighth note triplets on the fundamental. Seco, Seco, tell him Seco. So that was what you call a, a to me a signature shot in a song. That's like the ruby slippers and the. This this the song was. Good vibrations. Good vibrations. And so, and that is what got me the job as lyricist. And I knew that when I left the studio. Ah. I just thought I would say that because it's not like a an answer to cancer. And it's really pathetic when, you know, old generals have to rec recall their early triumphs. But that was a triumph for me. It got me a gig. What studio was that? Western 3. Mm. It's, it's not still there, is it? I don't know. Hmm. It is. Is it? But it's it's East West Studios. Ah. Now. Voice of Lee Sklar, yeah. just off mic, ladies and gentlemen. How many dates has Lee Sklar done? This is what I want to know. <laughs> how many records, how many albums are you on, Lee? Um, uh, about 2,600. It's more than most people have in their collection. Yeah, I don't have any of them. Of course. They, they, don't they, didn't, they don't give them to you. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> Just have Van Dyke's and yours. Oh, thank you so much. Um, well, we're going to ignore the, the ceaseless flattery now and move on with the, uh, the conversation. I'm just glad that Judith Owen was allow allowing me the pleasure of his company uh, today. He's, he's on a short leash. <laughs> um, it always fascinated me that you and Randy uh, existed in this in these almost this parallel set of worlds. You both had southern roots. Uh, you both came out here. You both had this taste for, as you described it, e economy of harmonic uh, expression or, or con construction. His chords are very sparse as well. And you both arrange the hell out of the orchestra. But he does, it's very interesting, he does. Yeah. You know, I mean, he uses traveling sixths, I think is what the nerds call it. <laughs> But he uses them in this choked up way. He really agonized. What I mean, what he thinks about every uh, is capable of divisy thinking. Okay, where you have a couple of voices and they're either in a position of of uh, dialogue and argument and stuff. And he's uh, this guy really agonizes mm. about. I can feel the. And that's uh, when uh, he wrote Vine Street for, for Song Cycle, which he did, about mm. my wife, uh, 
and she would become my wife, uh, who who had the perfume uh, idea of being selling patchouli. I think it was that had I endured that <coughs> patchouli. I can't believe it. all of us endured that. So, but um, but Randy, uh, yeah, Randy wrote the song on the song cycle. There was a song on it, was, and and it was called uh, Vine Street, and uh, what a song. So I think that the escapism uh was the was the the rule and also I think that it uh, you look at it now it doesn't seem so time worn because there's real uh invention in it I mean to me I mean I not I don't mean to say that with with my work certainly I I do anything I can to avoid it <laughs> um even if I have to listen to uh uh Funeral Mass by Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, you know I'd anything but have have me listen to what I have done. Uh, well, I I went back and and after your farewell shows in Los Angeles, uh, dug through that that the stuff I have and also that record that you put out, uh, and realized that the guy who had arranged that sort of very ear candy version of Stephen Stills down, I think I love you, was you. Um, which I and I, I I think I said this to you in an email. I knew we were always supposed to like the Stephen Stills version better, but I couldn't help myself. Every time the Mojo Men came on the air, I couldn't. I, I had to listen to the whole record because I, I was, loved it. I was just nuts about the the group, the Mojo Men, because the drummer was a girl, ah. and I thought, what is going on here? So, One of the Mojo Men was a woman. Yeah, and I couldn't believe <laughs> they it. keep lying to us. Then, then they threw the tiki's at me. You remember the tiki's? That no, was, came out of the San Francisco meat market that uh, Tom Donahue sold a bunch of autumn records, and that there's all of a sudden all these San Franciscans arrived, and they're called the tiki's. I said, well, you can't do that. That's a little light in the loafers. Let's go with something a little more like you know, characteristic, and that was what what I I said. You know, I took credit for naming them Harper's Bazaar, and so I could, um, so I can. In olden anything goes. That's it. Yeah. And that that so that got me a job because I knew that song. And I thought if they would get get give the Tiki's an errol name from the great great songs of of the brill building experience and all that it would give us some it would i would end up on some recording sessions playing that music mm. so i did that for until they were wise to me i think <laughs> i didn't play on their second record at all their loss um so but the vast majority of your work in town uh since those early days at warner brothers has been as an arranger for Various artists, uh, Fiona Apple, uh, most memorably, I think, recently, uh, the, her, her records. Uh, but you, you've arranged for so many people. The one I like is the the three cellos I did for uh, Sam Phillips because they, that one guy played the three, Martin Tillman was his name, he played the three cellos, and it just sounded like we were like 
past the twilight zone. It was very dark. Mm. And then for a second, and then they put it all together, and it, what do you got? You know, it's a beautiful, uh, because it reduces, you know, the... the um, uh, the playing field. It just all of a sudden, everything becomes very, really Im- of is structural importance. That's to, I'm doing my string quartet work now. Mm-hmm. I'm arranging for string quartet so I can go to Peoria or Paris and find a pickup group that will play these four voices. And it's it, it's really for a culture rocker like me. I'm 72, and but yet that it, it's. To me, it beats the crossword puzzle. It beats it beats everything I can think of right now. Uh, this uh, for if 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 they'd ever spend any money on me, I would add a bass and a harp, and so that I would have uh, everything I need to uh, fill a vast place. That you're writing specifically for for that, that yeah i'm writing i am writing this all, irreducible music <laughs> and the very interesting thing is to be able to write for a string quartet and and still and if you add a bass and a harp to have them have an active athletic contribution to make i mean even to the point of being necessary feeling necessary mm. once so i mean it's a big deal uh for me this is what i'm loving to do uh this is all for the spoken word and it doesn't require me to play ah. because you're not happy playing anymore no it's not uh you know it's like you know you know those welsh <laughs> when they those welsh the way they say <laughs> Yes. Nothing, nothing is good where better is possible. Mm. You know, I mean, to me, I'm, I feel very, uh, um, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in always being able to do what I could do in my lettuce years. You know, so that's natural. Do you think you had a a performer's ego, or have had a performer's ego? No, I don't think so. I mean, I I, I don't. That's a new term to me, Uh, but I think it's uh, redundant. But I'll take it. But it's uh, no, no. I don't want. I I want to find a way to be fully participant, but not hold the bag. (laughs) Um, we mentioned jump. Um. This was... It didn't. It didn't. It loped. I'm telling you. <laughs> but it, it you you put out the record, which mm-hmm. was an original musical. Mm-hmm. Uh, your goal, I gather, reasonably enough, was to have it staged somewhere sometime. So we may we may sometime yet see this stage. Do you think? I would very much like to do that. Uh, uh, yes, yes, I would very much like to do that. And your and your number is because listed, I, right? Because I think that it is a cure-all for uh, for uh, uh, cro- in crossing the racial divide that America has a, a pronounced uh, attitude toward uh, uh, race, racism. That's yeah. this uh, that I think needs entertainment and understanding. And uh, this is a this is an instrumental called Jump. One, two, three, four. <laughs> My thanks to Van Dyke Parks and Lee Sklar. 
as well as to Mr. Jeff and to engineer Jake Valentine at the Village Studio in Los Angeles for help with today's broadcast. And uh, we, uh, we we talked a lot about Van Dyke's coming up days, but he's he's working all the time on movie scores, ranging for Inara George and Skrillex, among other people. He's he's a man of this century. That's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations, over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world via the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America, via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet on the mighty 104 in Berlin, around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want it, harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com and available as a free podcast from iTunes, SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, and TuneIn.com. And it'd be just like being a man of the century if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much, uh huh? The email address for this program is. Uh, Playlist of the music heard here on Tar- Cars I Talk t-shirts at harryshearer.com. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates from the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. Thanks to Pam Halstead, Jenny Lawson, and Adrian Bodman. So long from London. <laughs>